this is going to be winging it, winging it in earnest. But you know that book. Which book? Free. You come up here and be free. <laughs> <laughs> I like my notes. I think if you Doc, just look at I forgot the them. chapter, if you want to discover them, you'll have it in your head. You just look at the chapter in the book. <laughs> Any, would anybody like to uh, ask for prayers for something? <clears throat> Nobody? Um... Everybody, anybody who came in late, we've got um, the study guide for this last week. I've told you I'm always just catching up. I'm sorry about that. It's good to know that some of you are behind because at least that way the study guide might be a little bit more useful for you. Um, I think truly it would help you to have something like this in advance because you can get a brief summary of the chapter. And I think it really helps to hold everything together. But. Um, as I said, I wasn't planning on doing this, and I'm glad to do it because I think it'll help. And I'm more earnest about it right now because coming back to this book again, um, I'm so grateful to Melville and amazed again to see what he's doing. So um, I hope the study guys will help you guys um, see that. Um, every summary um, is followed by some study question, so let's start. <coughs> as soon as the troublemaker's ready. One, sorry, one of them. Marcy, come sit down. I'm kidding. Come on. No, 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 no. I sit here so I can do this one again. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself um, in Mass this morning, um, your life itself that we carry within us, and your words for us. Um, um, the first reading today was about wisdom and um, the importance of it in our lives, that it was there before creation, or take that to mean Christ. Um, Thank you for all the ways in which you offer yourself to draw us into your wisdom. Help us to give it ourselves to it, to know that um, the knowledge of this world is a good thing to have for all of us. Um, how much greater to share in your wisdom. I ask that all of us be open to it, even where it creates tensions with the kind of knowledge that goes with our work, particularly with our work. Help us to make it living, to trust you not to be afraid of mystery. There's so much about our world that wants to control, just not at ease with mystery at all. Um, my hope is that the reading that we do strengthens us in our efforts to be open to your mysteries. Um, we ask a blessing on um, Madison, um, the work that Tracy's done with her. Um, help her to find good parents Continue to bless Tracy in her work. Um, let her know um, how deep the blessing is and what she's doing. Um, to find a strength to continue it if that's what she's going to do with you. Let that be so for all of us in the work that we do. Um, we are glad to have this time together. We are grateful for the food. Um, 
let a blessing be upon us all we do this night, um, into the evening and through the week. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, can you take out Blake? The, this will be our last reading of Blake. We'll do the, the last two poems. I'm going to read the last one first, London. Remember, remember the poems from Milton and Jerusalem, England Awake, Awake. Um, Jerusalem, thy sister calls, why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death? He's, he, like, like um, Jeremiah, you know, particularly, or um, Isaiah and some of the Old Testament prophets, he's disturbed at what he sees in his hometown, in his country, in England. And like the prophets of the Old Testament, he's calling his people back. And he would know, the way we would, that the prophetic tradition stopped with Christ. Yes, I think everybody knows that. The whole prophetic tradition was pointing towards Christ. He fulfills it. So the prophetic tradition closes. If there's going to be anything prophetic after Christ's coming, it will be from people of the world. And that's what we've been looking at in all of our time together. So Blake is one of those poets who self-consciously was aware of that, that what he was doing was prophetic. In any of his writings on poetry, Blake talks about the imagination. If you know anything about romantic poets, you know that the imagination is really important for all of them. Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats. And I, I've not heard anybody talk about this in the way that I think they should sometimes. I think what's going on with the romantics is we're a century, century and a half, two centuries, um, beyond the, the Copernican Revolution and the advent of modern sciences. And what's happened, if, if you look historically at what's been going on, is the scientists have co-opted reason and made reason a certain thing. It's, it, reason is moving in the direction of the empirical sciences, so people are defining reason in that way. In that sense, reason's co-opted, it's gone. So, unlike the poets in the ancient world, the romantic poets are turning to the imagination. They, they see reason as somehow being defeated, incapable of getting to some of the things that poets get to. So, all of them elevate re um, the imagination. They see it as a, the power of the poets because it can take them beyond what the sciences are doing. So, in one sense, we've got this widening schism between the arts and the sciences. And if you know anything about what's going on, you know that schism has widened into our time, that the sciences and the humanities don't speak to each other, it's widened, they look at the world in completely different ways. That's one of the, I mean, I, I'm so aware of, of how keenly Melville is aware of this problem, what he's doing to answer it. Blake was one of the poets who saw that what he was doing was prophetic. He saw the imagination as rooted in Christ as the living imagination. And if, if, if you put this tradition together, you'll know that, that up until that time, um, reason wasn't confined to the science, scientist. Um, poets used it all the time. You, you can't talk about Shakespeare without, or Dante, 
without um, seeing that both of them affirm the powers of reason. Remember Paulina's words, uh, anybody who thinks this is unlawful or unreasonable, let him depart. Um, Shakespeare is one of the great inheritors of the classical tradition, so reason was really important. That's not so now in the 19th century. So he looks at the imagination as this great power and that, that has its ultimate roots in Christ. So he, he's making this call to his nation to recover its Christian faith because it's lost it. We saw that in Jerusalem, we saw it in Milton. Um, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? You remember this. Did the continents divine shine forth on our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? It's as if a satanic force has taken over and shows itself in this industrialized world that defines the 19th century. Bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows, um, bring me my chariot of fire. I hope you all will make an effort to see Chariots of Fire, that movie that we talked about last week, if you haven't seen it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary movie. The last two poems, Tiger and London, I want to do London first because it's, it's Blake's um, treatment of the way in which reason, to most of the romantics, is seen as a bad power. Because what he's seen is that reason has become rationalistic, legalistic. It's out of tune with our nature. So when he looks at the city and he sees the signs of reason, you'll see it in a second, you'll see how oppressive it's become. So it's, it's like a forewarning of what reason will do to man in the modern world. And it's continued into our day. And I, I want to just um, remind you, too, of an, an important distinction to keep in mind. I hope by now, particularly those of you who have been here since the beginning, but certainly since um, Dante, that the way the modern looks at reason is not the way St. Thomas or Dante or Shakespeare would have looked at reason because they would have seen it as man's highest power and um, um, looking back to God, who was reason itself. So when they think about reason, they don't think about reason in the same way that we do. Just keep, don't forget that. So even though Blake is very critical of reason and the laws that it enacts and the inhuman things that it does, that's traditionally not the way most of the poets that we've been dealing with look at reason, okay? London. <clears throat> Notice the, notice the terms chartered, that reason has legislated all these laws. They have imposed themselves on the streets. They even impose themselves on the Thames, the river, so that man can go nowhere in the city without seeing this, the effects of this ugly, legalistic use of reason and the laws that it produces. That's the image we have here, okay? So that he's even going to look down on marriage because marriage is a law. I'm going to trust me, everybody knows that. Couples can live together and believe that they're going to do just fine and then finally get married and have problems because, I, because what happens when we marry is that we put love and passion and eros under law. Then suddenly we have to come to terms with being obedient to things and that gets, I mean, we all know that that's not easy at times. So. But there's nothing this reason, this sort of unnatural force in Blake's eyes, uh, there's nothing that it doesn't touch and in some ways harm, okay? 
so London. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind forge manacles I hear. Keep that in mind, the mind forge manacles, what man does with his reason. The chartered streets, the chartered Thames. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. It's full of paradoxes that um, men turn away from marriages to harlots to give them something marriage and its oppressiveness can't give them. There's, there's, there's nowhere he looks that he doesn't find signs of the oppressive, the bands, the charters. Um, tiger. Remember here too that the tiger he's talking about is not an earthly tiger. Um, it's, it's conditioned on the forest of the night. So the tiger, in some, we have to see that in some sense it's like Plato's forms. We never got into Plato's forms and I don't want to go there, but if you know Plato, you know that the ultimate origins of all things are the ideas that, that exist in an un, eternal, unchanging world. <coughs> that all things here, beds, humans, animals, trees, all things in nature have their origins in eternal forms. Um, otherwise, we can't account for the consistency among species in our world. It was his way it, it was his way, finally, of showing that there is such a thing as being, something that's unchanging and real. That's why he's called a realist. St. Augustine found that line of thinking profound because he thought that what Plato was describing as forms were the ideas in God's mind. Which is an amazing thing to know, that what he called seminal ideas, seminal, like, like the semen, seminal, that they are creative and productive. They're the source of all things in in nature. And, and if you think about it, it has to be true in some sense. I mean, how, how could God have created man as a species and distinguished him from animals or the vegetative life if he hadn't had ideas in his own mind so that our ultimate roots go back to those ideas? They're seminal. Um, the tiger here is not an earthly tiger. It's, um, it's conditioned of the night. It's of the forest. So in the tiger, He's looking at the archetype, the idea, the creative idea, so that in some sense it's like the creative archetype within the artist's soul. And for Blake, the ultimate artist would be Christ um, in all that. Remember, he's the word, the source of all creation. So the tiger that he's looking at here is not an earthly tiger, because remember that if you're if you're in a if you're in an African jungle and you turn a corner around a tree or something and you suddenly face a tiger, imagine how terrified you'd be. I remember what I remember when a friend dear friend of our family asked me to join him when he took his daughter on their first camp out. We were good friends and he just 
and wanted to know if I'd join him. And, and I said yes, and there had been, I don't know if I told you this story, but there had been all these experiences of um, bears eating people. We were, we were in California. We heard it in the, in the California parks and in the Montana parks. And I can, remember, I can remember thinking how brave I'd be if I faced a bear. <laughs> I mean, I just, when you're young, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think certainly for me, these romantic ideas of how brave and noble you'll be, you know. Or, anyway, that night when we went to sleep, sometime early in the morning, I heard this click, you know, this clicking sound, this click sound. And it woke me up and I turned over and Dick, Dick Bloomer, who was my friend, was maybe five or six yards off with, it had to be Katie or Jimmy, I can't remember, one of his children. Um, and he got my attention, and when I looked over him, he pointed suddenly to the table, and I looked over at the table, and here was this bear. Oh, <laughs> it had to be 20 feet away. Well, what was my response? I went down into the bottom of the sleeping bag and covered up. <laughs> I need wine on that one. <laughs> so much for my courage. Um, so keep that in mind. Here, he's describing a, a tiger, and the reason I mentioned the earthly tigers, imagine the fear that you would, this is really real to me, imagine the fear that you would feel, experience, if you were in Africa and suddenly were confronted with a tiger who was right in front of you. Now, having said that, imagine, I mean, we talk about the beatific vision. Imagine seeing God and seeing the archetype form in his mind of a tiger. And what you would feel in the presence of that. Because we're talking about very different dimensions, okay? And in that sense, the earthly tiger would be nothing compared to the numinal power of that thing we'd be beholding in his mind, okay? The tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? The beauty of this thing, imagine it. In, how could it exist in God's mind except in the most stunning, dreadful kind of order and beauty, the, the magnificence, the power of it? In what distance deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire like a blacksmith? Who, who, was the, who was it that made, who could have, here, if that's the archetype of tigers, who could have made it except somebody who was infinitely greater than the tiger itself, this archetype? Real clear, is that clear? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? How much greater this thing that made this tiger. When the stars threw down their spheres and watered heaven with their tears. You know what that's an allusion to? Hmm? Sorry? The angels revolt, a third of heaven was lost. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? If he made the angels and lost them, what would have been God's response to that loss? 
When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? God. I've said each time we've read Blake, so simple. I mean, I don't know of a poet whose language is simpler than Blake's. He's so simple. And yet, when he manages to get in his poem, should be an inspiration for all of us. We don't have to have a great vocabulary to, to, to produce beautiful things. So that's William Blake, okay? Now, since I don't have my notes, I'm going home, and I'll see you all next week. That's what they were saying when they were chasing whales. Remember what happened? Um, okay, quick review. Quick review. These are the things that we talked about next week, and I want to go over them briefly. Ishmael set up. Openness to being. Last week. Last week, what did I say? It's continuous. <laughs> it's the platonic side of me. I'm outside of time. Um, okay. Remember, here's the plot. We talked about the plot as an imitation of an action. Um, and remember, the, according to Aristotle, the, the visible incidents that make up the plot um, are an imitation of an invisible spiritual movement of soul. Some change takes place. We saw that in the Iliad with Achilles, with Odysseus in the Odyssey, with Aeneas in the Aeneid. Remember how great the change was in Aeneas. Um, two great changes, just to remind you, because these things are important to hold on to. Remember when he comes to Carthage and he looks at the temple that depicts the Trojan War. He's been at sea, defeated, for seven years. He left Troy with the expectation of founding a city. He's this great hero, one of the great, far greater than Hector in lots of ways. And in the Iliad, he's, I mean, the Odyssey, or the Aeneid, he's greater than anybody, an extraordinary figure. He looks at that image on um, Dido's temple, and it's as if he doesn't know this figure because for Almost eight years, he's been trying to found a city, and he's been defeated again and again and again and again. Remember, that's why I said when we started the Aeneid that it wasn't for timid souls. I think that was my... The, because what Aeneas was going to experience was nothing but loss again and again and again and again. And as a matter of fact, the book ends that way because, remember, it ends with him killing Turnus. We don't see the city going up. And I suggested then that the great theme of the, the Aeneid is a calling that in this world, um, remember Virgil was called melancholy, Virgil? In this world, we will face nothing but losing battles. That's our faith, by the way. I mean, we should take some comfort in that. Our home is not here. Um, are the saints ever satisfied? I mean, they leave this world distraught. Or, or joyful in the defeats they suffer. Okay, so that was the Iliad. That was one of his changes when he looked at that that picture, that story depicting the Trojan War when he was one of its heroes and he's been spending eight years experiencing losing battles, basically. And the other is um, when he meets Dido in the underworld, remember he has to leave her. 
So he has to confront the failings, his failings from the past. Um, he didn't know he was going to experience all this, but he did. And that's a part of his growth moving forward. Rome won't be what it could be without the qualities that Aeneas brings to it. It's this whole divine calling. And, and you know what Dante does to that. I mean, Dante carries it forward. Dante can't go on to purgatory or heaven without facing his sins and experiencing the contrition, the, the wanting to, to turn to Christ to get out of him. So this, is, this whole inner movement, the spiritual movement that I'm talking about has been a, a major aspect of every epic we've read. It is here too. So one of the questions that I posed to you last week, if this is about a founding, the, the, the Moby Dick is about a founding like all epics are about a founding, and the epic hero has to bear some divinely appointed task, he will be the one to survive the wreck at the end. What's his task? What's he bringing us? What's this inner movement of spirit that um, characterizes him? If we take all the incidents of Moby Dick, this is getting ahead of myself, but it's, it's a pointed question looking forward. If all of the incidents lead up to this crash, this destruction of the Pequot and the, the death of all the crew except Ishmael, if all the incidents are leading up to that and he survives, what is he bringing back to us? Well, part of what we're doing each week is reading that, experiencing what it is he's bringing back for us. So we've got to ask, what is he bringing back and what's happened to Ishmael? What, or rather, what is happening to him? Remember, he set off depressed and morbid. And we've already seen a number of changes. That, that second night with Queequeg, he said, my, my splintered heart softened. So something happens. and. In the quarterdeck scene, we see Ishmael um, joining forces with the crew to support Ahab and his quest. They all want to take vengeance on that whale. Well, is the Ishmael that we're seeing chapter after chapter that same Ishmael? I don't think so. There's something happening, and what's happening is visible in all these chapters. So when we read them, it's really important not just to read them as factual information. It's like going to an encyclopedia and seeing what he says about things. We have to keep in mind that this is the Ishmael who's come back and who's telling us the story. What is he learning? What is he, what is he showing us that takes him beyond the, the opening in Lumings and the quarter deck scene when he joined with Ahab? What, how's he different? What's going on here? So even, even though he never says, says, I feel myself changing, clearly something's happening. What is it? So, um, the plot's an imitation of an action. Some change inwardly is taking place in Ishmael when he sets off to sea. And remember, the, the opening chapters were a critique of, of a failed Christianity, that there's something wrong. The veil has come over Christianity in the 19th century. And I suggested last time that these opening chapters, what was it, 26 to 40, whatever? 49. 49? 20, 26 to 49? Is that right? Do you have 50 to 68, what I've got. No, 26 that's, to 47. Say? 26 to 47. 26 yeah, 47. there it is. Yeah. 26 to 47. Um, I hope you're all taking these study guides because my hope is that you'll take them and read them and one day a year from now you'll want to go back to Moby Dick and read it because you'll have a completely different experience of it. You'll, you'll just read it differently. Anyway, I call these setup chapters. Um, and 
Remember, I did this for a couple of reasons. No, I want to just. I asked you to look at the um, the table of contents last week to look at some of the titles. Just for a second, go to chapter fifty-five. Look at the title of the monstrous pictures of whales. He, he gives us all of these depictions of whales from countries all over the world. In chapter 56, of the less erroneous pictures of whales and the true picture of whaling scenes. So in two chapters that are juxtaposed, he gives us images of whales that are universal, they're all over the country, but there's something wrong with them. In the next one, he's correcting them and saying, less erroneous. In chapter 57, of whales in paint, in teeth, in wood, in sheep, in stone, in mountain. Um, and I, I asked last week, why is he doing this? And, and suggested um, that it's not only in these chapters, but others. What he's doing is covering his tracks, in one sense. He's, he's um, presenting himself in such a way um, that we will have a harder time criticizing him for being partial in telling the story. Because any man who could give all these representations and be dis detached enough to present them as, um, as impartially as he does is somebody we should trust. He, he shows himself to be different from these people who present erroneous pictures of whales and less erroneous. So his depiction of whales, his presentation, is getting finer and finer and finer. He's able to see what's wrong with these other things. And you know from the reading, he's going to do that with everything. He's going to do that in the section, in the group of chapters we're reading tonight, because he's going to be critiquing philosophers. Plato, Spinoza, Locke, Kant. There's not a modern that he doesn't criticize. So he's a man who has thought a lot about the world and it seems to me one of the things that he's doing in, in so many of these chapters in last week's reading is he's instilling in us a trust that he doesn't take things lightly, that we can trust his presentation of things. He's not a man given to prejudices or extremes. He knows the difference. He can make distinctions. Um, so in the, in the opening of the, this, what I'm calling the setup, when the Pequot sets off to sea, He's immediately um, teaching us things about the sea, but he's also um, um, cultivating um, a trust in him, um, that we can, we can trust this man. And remember I said last week um, how important it was, because so often in these chapters, he, he gives us these experiences of people who are skeptical about whales. We got some in our reading tonight. Um, and he gives the account of one particular man who has nothing but doubts about these stories. Um, I'll come to it in a second. Um, because imagine what most people would have said when they put down Moby Dick. Oh, sure. Nice story, nice story for kids about this improbable thing that takes place. Because remember, he's, he's absolutely flying in the face of a scientific representation of the world. According to the sciences, this is laughable. It belongs to a world of the fabulous, the unreal, the world of fairy tales. 
So while all of this may seem a little bit boring, you know, it really isn't. Um, and I want to come to that in a minute because I want to underscore it. It seems to me that Ishmael, I'm giving it away here, it seems to me that Ishmael is helping us to become better readers because he's setting so many perspectives off against each other that he's showing that there's something wrong with all these partial perspectives. That the, the people who see things in those partial ways are missing something in the world. What exactly that is, we'll have to wait till we get to the end and put it all together. But so these are setup chapters. Um, the other thing we saw about Ishmael in the group of chapters we read last week is this, what I'm calling this openness to being. He's so receptive to things around him. And I asked the question, how many of us go through our days aware of the meaning of things around us? It's gotten increasingly easier in a scientific world to, to take things for granted. We don't notice them. Um, science is, is in, has encouraged a, an abstract habit of mind to abstract from things and live in ideas. Ishmael is trying to get us back to the concrete world, to actual things. I think women are generally much better at this than men. Um, women are more responsive to concrete things. Um, men tend to live in ideas, and yet the poets that we've been reading, for, for the most part, are men. And they're the ones who are answering the habit, the, generally the habits of men to live in black, white, abstract. Uh, abstractions because they leave too much of the world behind. So chapter after chapter, Ishmael is, is presenting something that's a part of his experience on this journey, but in a way that helps us not to look past it, to see that there is something for us to learn in these analogies to being, because not a chapter passes when he doesn't relate a certain aspect of a whale, let's say, to our human life. How, how it says something to us about our way of dealing with each other. So he's, and by the way, this is absolutely Catholic. Absolutely, it should be. Absolutely Catholic. The Protestant world looks at nature as depraved. The, the Protestant world circumvents nature. It, um, Alan Tate calls the Protestant mind the, the angelic imagination. It, it, it misses the incarnation. It doesn't go to the world. Ishmael Ishmael doesn't look at anything that he doesn't take us to. So we're going to the world, returning to the world again and again and again and again. Tate calls that kind of an imagination the symbolic imagination. It becomes aware of the analogies of being. That the only way we can get to the higher things is through the visible things. That's St. Paul. How do we know the invisible things of the world? We know them through the things that are created. So there's this ladder of analogy of links from us to God. That whole analogy was destroyed in the 18th and 19th century. Ishmael's recovering it. So what we see again and again, and he's, he's helping us to recover some sense of our oneness with nature. The analogies between everything that's going on there and um, with us. Um, the Town Ho story it was the story we, we, um, we closed on. You remember the story, um, the the town ho, the town ho is one of the ships that that the um, Pequod meets, and they have the gam. The gam is when ships meet at sea. And we learn after that meeting that Tashtigo had spoken with one of the town ho crew members, and learned this story of um, of Steelkilt and Radney that had taken place before, and neither captain knew about the event, strangely. 
The story is the counter story to Ahab's story because Ahab looks at the whale as um, sinister and um, evil. What we learn in the Town Ho story is that is that Moby Dick actually saves Steelkilt from damning himself. You remember, Radney is a pushy maid. He pushes people around and, and he humiliates them. Steel, Steelkilt refused to be um, intimidated by him. When Radney tells him to mop the deck, he refuses and there's a mutiny. All the mutineers are captured and put below deck and they're starved, forced to um, surrender and, and fall in line. Um, and Steelkilt is the last one to give in, and when he does, when he is brought up on deck, they're all punished. The captain is, is going to lash Steelkilt, and he turns around and looks at him and says, you touch me and I'll kill you. The captain is unnerved, and he gives the task to Radney, who's the one who, um, who was so nasty. Remember the thump? We talked about that, that thump in the beginning, the universal thump in Ishmael's way of saying, two cheers that all of us are going to be thumped in our lives. Um, here, this is a pretty serious thump. Steelkilt is a man of honor. He, did, he didn't like what Radney did that initially, you know, that caused the mutiny. Here, Radney lashes him and Steelkilt vows that he will kill him. They're all released, sent back to duty, and then um, over the course of the next few days, Steelkilt plans his murder. He puts together this ball that he plans to use to smash um, Radney's head. On the very day of, of the evening that Steelkilt intended to kill Radney, they sight a whale and go after it. It turns out to be Moby Dick. Radney is on the, on the bow of the ship and um, Moby Dick does something to unbalance it and R Radney, the only one who's tossed out, it's only Radney, he's tossed out. And um, Moby Dick takes him and goes down and kills him. And I read those passages where, where Ishmael writes, it was like um, um, a providential justice intervening. It's one of those, what did he call it, a, re a reversal of a power, a heavenly power, that it turns something. So that in that instance we see that Moby Dick acted in a, in a virtuous, beneficial way, a way to benefit somebody. And it raises the question, how do we read Moby Dick again? Is nature, I mean, if I, we enlarge on it, is nature inherently evil, the way Ahab suspects? Or is it beneficent? Um, how do we read nature itself? Um, it was created by a good God, it should be good. The, the Protestants believe is that the effects of the fall were complete, that nature was, um, became depraved, um, man in it, so. So that's where we were. I raised two questions last week, the week, actually the week before, and I repeated them. I just want to put them out again for everybody to hold on to. Um, one of them was, um, it seems to me one of the more serious questions we have to face in reading Moby Dick is this. Um, if Ahab is an image of, if he's an image of an American tragic hero, hero, all, all the epic heroes we've read are tragic heroes according to the classical tradition. Ahab, I mean, sorry, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, they belong to a noble world. That's the, that's the ideal in the, in the epic world. Um, if he's an image of a tragic hero and an image of something American, 
what is it? How do we explain it? Where did it come from? And I suggested that at the heart of Ahab is an image of something in America that, that is quick to find fault, to point a finger, to blame, and to want to get back. Um, and at, at a very intense level. And if we take Ahab serious, you know there's the whole intellectual aspect to what he's doing. Try to argue with Ahab. Nobody can do it. He's so convinced in his head that he's right. And he's got this black-white way of looking at things. This whale is evil. Um, so he's determined to take vengeance on it. You, you know from the position that I've been urging on you all, all this time is that the epic hero often gives us an image of something below conscious level in all of us. That's the value of it. That the prophetic poet shows us things about ourselves that too often we don't want to see. They're uncomfortable. If we're reading this seriously, we should be asking this question seriously. We shouldn't be denying it. If he's an image of us, what is he image? And, and how is that peculiarly American? So we talked a little bit about that, the, the two American foundings, the, the, um, the Protestant founding, the, the, um, the fleeing from England um, in order to uh, practice a religion. So at, at the root of the American identity is this religious aspiration. And we've seen how dark it turns here, that what began as, as, a, you know, as a religious conviction gets turned towards conquering nature. The Pequot is an industry moving out into the world to get what it can out of it. So the first founding was religious, the second was political. We broke off from England. In both of those, we were responding to wrongs. So um, is there something to learn about the American psyche from, from looking at this? That, that was one. And the other question that I wanted to ask, and it's, it really, it doesn't bear on the book directly, and I feel a little bit awkward about doing it, but it came out of that effort that I made to distinguish the Catholic and Protestant worlds. You know, and, and one of the points that I tried to make is that at the center of the Catholic world um, are the sacraments, Christ's actual presence in the world. For a Protestant, that's not true, which means the Protestant tends to encounter Christ in his head, largely through his head, intellectually, through Scripture. That's why Scripture is made so important. And, and to their detriment, it, the, what that does is put you in your head again, understanding things. In the sacraments, we, we're not understanding something conceptually in our heads. We're actually in a communion. There's no better word. Right? I mean, we're linked. It's, remember in the, in the Paradiso, when the souls are going up, um, Dante, Beatrice s s um, anticipates Dante's thoughts. She always knows what he's going to think before, or say before he says them. And remember those reflexive verbs we talked about that when he says, I am in othering you, God is in othering, that there's this um, activity of indwelling going on. That the difference between the, the Christian and the Hindu is that we believe that in Christianity in heaven, every individual keeps his unique individuality. In Buddhism, it becomes a glob. I mean, individuality is, um, is protected. In Hindu, individuality is lost because according to Hindu, that's one of the causes of sin. The Protestant churches did not dump communion. 57% of Southern Baptists have it on a quarterly basis. 
It's true. Fifteen percent have it five to ten times a year. Eight percent less than four. And one percent each week. So the sacraments are there, at least they are there in the Protestant churches. And this is for real. Yeah. They're not communion, but they're not sacraments. Yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah, hold on. They take communion. Yeah, I know. Wait, wait. For 50 years. I know that. that, that one, one of the fundamental differences, though, is that, and I'm speaking broadly, because my understanding, I may be wrong here, but my understanding of the high Anglican Catholic Church is that the sacraments, or the communion is still sacramental in that sense. But for the Protestant world at large, people take communion, but it's looked at as a commemorative activity. It's not, it's not sacred. Yes, the, it is. Well, that, that isn't, well, Marcy. Yes. I was there 50 yeah. years. Marcy, I had a friend that I was helping to move, mm -hmm. and she had a box of posts in her cabinet. And she pulled it out, and I'm like freaking out. It's like, what are you doing with those? Oh, those are communion hosts. Where did you get those, Mardell? And it just weirded me out. That, well, you know, I'm thinking she has some Jesus in her house, and she's thinking she's got bread. No, they were. Well, that's not true about no? the ones they use in the church, because we never saw those. They were always kept in a special place. But that bothered me, because it seemed to me you were trying to take that communion out of the churches and I know it I know it's there and this was done a year ago yeah. over all the Catholics in the country I, I think about when they had communion yeah. so it is there well, I, yeah, Mark, and it is wait, let's, communion and, it's and breaking bread and the, the act of passing something out I mean you can be a Nazarene and go drink grape juice I mean I mean there is right. something that happens but is it truly sacramental? It is, is it? It is a very prayerful time. Yes. Here, I want to stop this because we can we can disagree. Yes, My, we can. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Yes. I know. It's I know. not what I experienced all those years. I'm, my, in my reading, and it's not small. In my reading, because I've taken this seriously, and in my experiences, I'm not a young kid, so it's pretty vast. Um, I'm 83. I know, I know. You got me on that one. Um, my experience as the Protestant, in my reading and in my discussions with them, is is that the fundamental difference. And I and I don't want to isolate church because I know that there are denominations where this isn't true. But for the broad Protestant church, um, there there may be a communion, but it's not sacramental. And the fundamental difference is that for a Catholic. There's um, a Catholic believes that Christ is actually present physically in that host, and that that experience of the sacred. Of, 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 that's why we kneel while we go through all those things is missing in the broad Protestant Church. Now let's just if that's a difference, leave it. Okay, I don't know what the Presbyterians do or the Methodists, but don't don't say that Southern Baptists. Um, reject that as a sacred thing because they do consider it a sacred thing. So that's, I just want you to know that and how strongly I feel about yeah. that. Yeah, I feel equally strongly, Marcy. I don't want it to come down to our feelings. There's a different presentation here. Let's leave it there because what the, the point that I want to make that I don't want to lose sight of here is that for the broad Protestant church, that's not so. And the facts bear that out. There may be particular denominations, you know, that, but yes. I don't know. Yeah. 
Then make Mike. an exception for the Southern Baptists, and I'll go along with you. Growing up around Southern Baptist my whole life and been told him because I'm Catholic I'm going to rot in hell. So here let's that's that's entirely different. We're talking about we're talking about the sacrament. One of the one of the questions that I wanted to raise here. One of the questions we can come back please here. One of the questions that I want to raise here is this one. What we see, and one of the criticisms that I've made of the broad Protestant church, and by the way, the focus for me is, is right now, in the context is Melville. And what we see in the New England culture, whatever denominations make it up, and we know that there's Presbyterians, and we know, I know that there's others, but I don't want to go there. Um, what we know is that the Christian faith has descended into a moral code the sacraments are not, are not there. There's no communion in that world. There are no sacraments. Um, and the question that I posed to you last week is, if Ishmael and the crew are dealing with a spiritual evil, can they, can they deal with it without a sacrament? And that was not a small thing, because we keep seeing parodies of it in the work. In the quarterdeck scene, um, Ahab inverts the, the harpoons and has the men drink from it. It's like an inversion of the mass. Later in the book, we're going to see um, him um, baptize the harpoon that he wants to use to kill Ahab, and he will pronounce oh, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. He, he will pronounce a Latin verse that's an inversion in the name of the Father, Son, and and he will say in the name of the devil. Those are taken from. Catholic rites, and that's not an accident. It's, it's one of the reasons I keep raising this question. Where is Melville on this Catholic question? We can't get into it. It's not our point. I, I don't want to press it. That's not my point here. My point is to do Moby Dick. But I want to try to be faithful to the book as he presents it. What we see in the beginning is that Christianity has declined into a moral code. The sacramental life is not there. The holiness is not there. It's a, it's, a, it's a faith largely intellectual. It's in the head. No communion takes place in Maple's chapel. Huh? Um, and I talked about this. If you look at the first mates, we see in the mates a whole range of the modern intellectual. Starbucks, Stub, um, Flask. None of them is able to deal with Ahab. The best one of them is Starbuck. He's a gentleman. He's well-educated. Um, he's a good man. Um, think about the difference between Melville and Starbuck, because Melville's aware of some things that Starbuck is not aware of in himself. I hope that's clear. Same thing for Hamlet. Same thing for, same thing for um, Achilles, Odysseus. The author's always seen something more, or we could never have ironies. Starbuck's a very good man. He's morally good. He can't even come close to dealing with Ahab. Um, and we saw what happens with Stubb. Um, he, you know, not think is my 11th commandment, and Flask looks at Moby Dick as some species of magnified mouse. <laughs> and the harpooners are all unconscious. So we have a range of men who, who have different levels of consciousness who can deal with problems. We have the, the native, the noble savages, who shows different degrees of unconsciousness. So what Melville is showing us is that you've got this whole range of men who, who are all good. Think about Queequeg. 
I mean, you can almost not get better than Cuique. He's such a good man. Um, he saves Tastigo in the reading we did for this week. Instinctively, when Tastigo goes into the whale, falls in, he goes, and he's in danger of drowning because the whale, the whale head is sinking. Queequeg, once again, goes after him, saves him. He's a good, good man, but none of them can deal with spiritual evil. And my, the question that I wanted to put to you was, if, if, if communion is sacramental, if, if Christ is present in the sacrament, then we have a divine presence in our lives with which to combat evil. Take that away and, and make the basis of Christianity an intellectual understanding of scripture when you're in your head, do you have the means within you to do that? So losing the communion, to me, is not small here. Melville's critiquing a Christianity that's weakening, fading. And that's outside the range of the book, but I had to raise this question with you guys. I hope you see why. Because Ahab's evil is real, and it's going to get more real as we go and we'll see it in a minute. The farther we go from New Bedford, Nantucket, the closer we get to the east, the farther away from the west, from Rome, rationality, Christ. Fadala is an evil man. I'm going to read that chapter where um, Ishmael describes him as his shadow engaging with Ahab's and becomes part of it. Um, and there's that discussion between Stub and Flask of whether or not um, Ahab's making a Faustian bargain. He's going to sell his soul. So the, we're increasingly we're, we're encouraged to see that um, Ahab has made a direction in the move of, in the in, made a move in the direction of evil, and Fadala is the figure, the shadowy figure who's leading him there. This sort of sinister evil figure. So we're dealing with evil in the book. Um, we haven't seen anything like this since Iago in, uh, in uh, Othello. And why? Because Melville was a great reader of Shakespeare. Um, so those are two of the questions that I wanted to leave you with. To, I mean, one of them is the book, and one of them for me was catechetical. I mean, it goes to what we're doing. But it bears on the book, but really only indirectly. But I had to raise it. Mark, did you have? Yeah, you said that Christianity is um, devolved into what Melvin was saying is Christianity is devolved basically into moral laws, not seeing the presence of, of a moral code. Of, yeah, of a moral code. Yeah. Do you see that any parallels between that and Christ coming to fulfill the Old Testament, where it had to devolve just to the law? Say, start over and slow down, King. Do, do you I, see that what Melville was talking about into a moral code? Yeah, as the Old Testament devolving from faith. From the Jewish people into law. Oh, yeah. And following the law. Yeah. And the prophets That's a good analogy. Christ came in yeah. to get rid of the quote, yeah. law yeah. and move forward. Except I, want, I would say, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, that's a really good question, and, and you've set up the parallel really well. The, the one qualification I was at, the Christ didn't come to do away with the law. I mean, that has to be clear, and I, I, I was emphatic with this last week cause, because I think there's a tendency in our culture to do that, to do away with the law. Christ made it really clear that he came to fulfill the law. And it makes no sense to understand what he did if we don't see that. Because remember, there was a law broken when man rebelled against God. When he went to a cross, the deepest understanding of that um, is he went to, fulfill, to, to give satisfaction for an injustice or to right a wrong. So at the heart of what he did was the whole question of justice. 
And I've, I've tried over and over and over again to be as clear as I could how important it is within our faith to see that one of the greatest struggles all of us have is bringing law and love together. One without the other is a mess. There's something wrong. So Christ didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And he, he, there are those passages where he, where he even says, you know, I didn't come to do, I came to fulfill every iota of the law. It's like he's answering that Jewish legalism that, that really did devolve into a moral code, a legalistic moral code that became less and less sacramental or, or less and less inspired by faith or mystery. Yeah, it's a really good parallel, I think. Now you said Ahab is sort of turning into Satan and becoming evil. And that that I wrote on mass hypnosis in the quarter deck, how many times Ahab used God to pull those men together on the quarter deck when he's talking to all of them? It's a reference to God over and over. And so he went from that to then bringing, turning into Satan. And he, there's even an oath he has to Satan uh, in one of the chapters there, one of these later chapters. Yeah. <laughs> so he used God and then yes, turned yeah. away. Yeah, I, 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 I've, not, I've not described Ahab that way, Marcy, and I, I, don't, I don't want my words to be confused. I'm not saying, I've never said he turns into Satan. Well, what satanic I, behavior, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, at this point... Evil, I believe. Yeah, wait, hold on, because I just... That's not what I've said, and I want to be careful. Okay. Um, we're going to see scenes in which Ahab is um, very tenderly human. He's not like Iago. Iago right. is satanic from beginning to end. Sure. Um, I have a hard time using satanic with a human being, and it's not because I don't believe humans are incapable of evil, because Iago is probably one of the purest examples of evil we know. But he's not Satan. Satan's an angel. We're humans. So. I don't want to. I, I wouldn't even make that statement anyway. Nobody turns into Satan. We can lose our humanity by becoming. Wait, wait. We becoming come evil. Into him. He he is he is under the influence of Fadala, who's clearly an evil demonic man. Mm -hmm. So some I I would go so far as to say some kind of demonic possession is at work, but he has not turned into Satan. He won't turn into Satan. He is a man, and we're going to see in a number of chapters in which what he does is so fully human, and I, and I believe it's important to see that. I, I mean, I, I differed with some of you when we did Othello, because it was really important for me to, to hold up this notion that the tragic heroes are all extremely human, and it's important for us to see the nobility in them, or we lose the tragic view. If we take away that greatness, we don't see how great the fall is. So there's something really great and noble in Ahab, um, but there are more and more signs that something sinister is at work in his life. So, almost, to me, I always equated Ahab to Adam. It is about the fall of man, and he is under influence because he has a strong faith and a strong belief in the in, the, in those traditional Protestant values right. of work and right. everything else. And he right. gets consumed right. by sin, by revenge, by thinking this is evil. Right. He gets acted upon in an improper way. To, to, you know. This evil guy, right. and, and, and it, it consumes him and he falls. In the end, he just, his soul fails. Right. Here it is in, in your um, paper. Statement translated means, I do not baptize thee in the name of the Father, but in the name of the devil. Right. That's later. 
yet that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, but and I, he went from using right. God you right. know, to gather people to him right. until he turned into this. Right. Yeah, that's which is baptism. I'm still. In the name we're not there yet, but because Ahab's still a ways off from that. We and I want to do justice to Ahab as we're moving forward. So, um, in chapter forty-nine. That's. Yeah, we'll come to it. We're going to come to it. I'll point it out when we get there. <laughs> you can count on. You can count on. You can count on my pointing it out too, because it'll be a major moment in what we're doing. Yes, it is. That's going to be a dark moment. Um, okay, um, this week. This week, um, a couple of things here. Where is Karen? Sergeant of Arms. I mean, it's just. Um, 20th. Every time I look at her, I can't look at her without being reminded of time, and she's not here, and time is going. Marcy, no more questions tonight. Okay. As long as you do it right. If that were the condition, we wouldn't even be here. You might as well go right now. You might as well leave. That's not going to be possible. She's trying to say you have to do it according to Marcy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to Plato's cave tonight for um, an important reason. You have these issues at Friday morning. What I was. No. I may show up there. What I was suggesting about the setup chapters is that um, Melville's beginning to cover his tracks. He's he's preparing us for what's going to happen, so that our mindset is ready. Because otherwise, if we don't take these things seriously, when the calamity happens, we're going to blow it off. Um, which is what I mean. Remember what I said last week. Melville was persecuted by that Protestant world because he was presenting these fabulous stories as if they were real. And, and there's that scene, remember, at the, in fact, I even asked you to look at it. There's that scene at the end of the Tao, town ho. Um, take a look, it's chapter. God. And the town ho. Chapter 54. Remember, and this goes to the whole question of narrative reliability that I'm speaking about, that we learn to trust this man um, because of the way he stands towards the world. He's not given to exaggerations at all. He uses reason really well. Um, in the middle of that passage, this, that's that passage that I meant, for by a mysterious fatality, heaven itself seemed to step in to take out of his hands into its own the damning thing he would have done. But Moby Dick seems to intervene. It looks like an act of providence. Um, and it's the opposite. So this is the counter story to Belleville. So it raises this question, how reliable Mel, or I'm sorry, how reliable um, Ahab is, right? He looks at the whale as evil. Here we have a scene that he's not even aware of where Moby Dick did something good. Um, so, in everything that Ishmael is doing, Melville, he, he's helping us to step outside of things so that we learn to see things with more detachment from some distance, so that we can be more reliable in what, whatever we do. But remember at the end, 
Um, at the very end, he says, remember his friends, his Spanish friends say, bring a priest in the Bible. And it's interesting, it's a priest. Um, and to swear in the Bible, because they don't believe what he's just told them. So again and again, Melville is showing us that he's aware of this tendency to blow things off, to minimize them, to laugh them off as if they're not real. And one of the friends um, says, bring a priest. Then he said, then another says, then there are, though there are no auto de fe's in Lima now, said one of the company to another, I fear our sailor friend runs the risk of the archbishopy um, doing something. Let us withdraw more out of, they've got to go into the dark to let this happen. So Ishmael, and Ishmael apparently might come under attack for telling a story like this. How often are people, particularly in the 19th century, how often were people persecuted for their religious beliefs? All the time, all the time. So once again, um, Melville's um, letting us know a couple of things. One is that Ishmael is a narrator, can be trusted. He swears on the Bible. <clears throat> and another, he's covering his tracks. He's, he's, he's making us aware that we need to distance ourselves from our stories if we're to, if we're to read well. It's probably the great thing of the, of the book. Um, I want to just for a moment to return to Plato's cave for a second. You all heard me do this a number of times, so I, I know I'm going over it. But for this reason, in this group of chapters that we looked at for this week, um, one, of the, one of the things that stands out in this collection, as just as a group, is that over and over again, Ishmael is telling stories about whales and whaling activities, but in a way that allows him to critique science and philosophy. Um, several times he, he puts um, Plato and Locke against each other. Plato was a realist, Locke was an empiricist, Locke was one of the first modern materialists. He puts Spinoza in with Kant and Descartes. Now why does he do that? Um, clearly he's, he's asking us, this is not just parody, although it's partly that, he's I think he's presenting things in such a way that we are being forced to ask how rich is our background? I don't think I can put it another way. How could Ishmael do this? How could Melville do this? I mean, Ishmael is our figure, not, not Melville, but so. How could Ishmael do this unless he had read Plato, um, Spinoza, Kant, Locke? Because what he's doing in every one of these instances is showing that there's something wrong with these philosophers. They're all missing something. They have these partial views. They're all rationalists. Most of them are modern rationalists. They're in their heads. So um, what he's, and, and he, he applies them both to the men on the ship. Remember there's those discussions between Flask and Stubb about Fadala and other discussions about various things. Um, and he's raising the question, how, how much do the characters on board the Pequod, how aware are they of their own limited way of looking at the world? Because what we find in, in Melville is something eclectic. It's Catholic. He's bringing in all of these worldviews to show they're wrong, 
How could he do that unless he was aware of them and stood outside of them himself? And repeatedly what he's making us aware of is how much do the men on the Pequod, how, how much have they been influenced by any one of these thinkers without knowing it? And even Ahab, with his reading background, with what cultivated him as a man, how Catholic was his reading? I mean, we're seeing right now that it wasn't at all. But remember the, remember the cave just for a second. Because remember, in the cave, um, there are all these men with books. And the light from the, or from the fire behind them casts these shadows on the wall, and all these people think the shadows are real. You all remember the shadows. Mm -hmm. These shadows, or in quotes, appearances. This is what appears to be the case. How many times do people make judgments based on appearances? And remember, this is so crucial. I mean, this is, this is what's got to be understood here. These appearances have their source where? In books. They're all intelligent. They've read. Yeah? Put Freud, Darwin, Locke, Spinoza, play, put them all there. Choose anybody you want. The book, they got their learning from the books. They're intelligent people, but they're convinced that they're right. And that's why they stay there. They don't ask questions. They fight Socrates all the time and finally kill him. They don't ask, the, the fundamental problem of the cave is that they don't ask questions. They're too busy trying to prove they know things. What's Plato's purpose? He wants us to see that unless, unless you come out of the cave, unless you open to wonder, that you're going to be misreading constantly. So Plato's critique is, if, if these people don't have a metaphysical view of things, if they can't come outside of the cave and have a means of judging the reading that's formed the characters inside, they're trapped. And they think they're right. Remember, right? That's why they're there. Chained to those concepts they have. So the question here for Ishmael is, because the fundamental question at the heart of Moby Dick is this. Fundamental, we've got this action story. What's at the heart of it? What's at the heart of this story is a fundamental misreading of the world. Ahab is convinced that the way he reads the world is absolutely correct. And he's going to go after that whale. What Ishmael is showing us is there are so many other things to see. He's open to being. He can critique these people, Kant, Locke, Descartes, Spinoza, because he's read them all. How, how capable are any of us, in, is any of us, if we don't have that kind of background? So that we end up sticking ourselves in a corner thinking we see things right when we don't. That's the fundamental problem at the heart of what we do. It's a, we, <laughs> this is so funny. Think about the high school kids reading this book. They're going to read this book as an action story about a whale. What's it about? It is fundamentally about reading and learning. That's the action of the story, reading. What's Ishmael doing chapter after chapter after chapter? Presenting things to help us enlarge our view of the world. Yeah? We're going to get to any, any part of this, just as an aside of, of that chapter that deals with uh, whiteness that they go into in, in some considerable detail with regard to 
what's white and what's, what's not, and what's not, and what, what the significance of it is. Is there any? I wasn't going to do any more than I did last week, okay. Bob, because right. we've got... Okay. Um, Let that one go. I, yeah. Well, I touched on it. I, I can't. Write it up if you have something to say. Yeah. <laughs> do, you want, do, you want, do you want to? I don't want to. No, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> Is there something specific you want to look at? Huh? No, I mean, just, I think worse is. There was just something yeah. I, I was curious. I mean, yeah. It was something, funny. something I, I, you know, my perception of what, of what was being That's it, right? explained yeah. in that, in that. Uh, yeah. No, there's so that, much. In that. Uh, I, 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 there are too many chapters to... Yeah, no, I understand. But I'll tell you this, it's interesting, because I didn't have you on my mind when I read it. I mean, uh -huh. sometimes I have different people on my mind when I yeah. read chapters, just because yeah. I'm relating to the world. But when I was reading today, you came to mind. Well, wait, cook. Because when, when the Pequot passes the, out of the Indian Ocean and goes through the Java Straits, yeah. you know, up towards the Chinese seas, because right. we're heading towards this confrontation, right. He was presenting all of these, the pirates, the Malaysians, and this Indonesian world, and you came to my, because I've heard you tell well, all these stories, and I, I just wondered what, right. what your response to that would have been, so, but we're not, we're not, I wasn't planning to do the whiteness. Yeah, I've been, been, been through there, right, right, right at, the, you know, at the bottom of the Celebes, there, you know, we ran the boat in the, in the, in the, in the port and, and had a beer and ordered beers <laughs> up the, while we were filling it with, with diesel. But I remember you're, you're in, you know, some of the times we've spent together, yeah. you, you've talked about um, how strange the ceremonies and customs of the East were, and how oh, unprepared yeah. people from the West were, and how oh, strange God, yeah. and in some ways unreal. Oh, yeah. And because that's what Melville's showing us when, I mean, all along, but he, particularly oh, when when the Pequot yeah. goes through the Java Straits and into that world, because we're getting, uh, that's one of the that's one of the things I wanted to say here. Two things to keep in mind because we can lose sight of them. This. For all the chapters we're reading, Ishmael's at the center of them. He keeps, he keeps giving us mythic stories, scientific stories, um, historically true stories. But when you put them all together, we learn to see that there's something deficient in the way that, and literature, <laughs> this, this amazing thing that he's doing this is bringing this world together and make, making us aware of it. But two things are going on here that I don't want to lose sight of that we could look past. One of them is, turn to, um, hold on, um, chapter 73. Is this it? Page 384. Is it underlined there? Do I have the shadow part underlined where Ahab's shadow? Oh, here, yeah, at the very end, in, in, in chapter 73. Meantime, Fadala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head, and ever and anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines of his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow. So he's standing in his shadow. Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow, while if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandi speculations were bandied among men concerning all these passing things. This is the chapter, Marcy, that I was thinking about. So we have intimations that Fadal is a shadowy character, I and mean, he's an evil, he's an, we'll see more and more that he's an evil man. But, uh -oh. wow. Uh -oh. Well. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Joe and Sula, they want us out of here? Probably. Um, light and dark. That. There's a sign. There it is, Bob. Ahab is coming more and more under this influence, and it's shadowy. I want to. I want to. So two things. Two things are happening. In this image, we have a um, an explicit um, sense of Fadala's influence on Ahab. One, two. Remember this. They they set off for Nantucket. They go around the Cape. They've just come out of the Indian Ocean in the readings that we're doing, and they're passing into the Java Seas and heading towards the China Seas. They are moving east into the Orient, which means they're, they're, they're moving east into the mystical cults, the superstitious religions, very often the anti-Christian religions, the demonic, the savage. Um, so remember, in good literature, geography is not an accident. They're really good writers. Merchant of Venice, you know, the um, Winter's Tale with Sicily and Bohemia, that, that those are not accidental things, they're real. So here is, as we move farther into the voyage and we're getting closer and closer to the end, we're moving away from the West, away from home, family, traditions, into something more and more mysterious and in some ways um, more deeply evil. Okay. So just keep that in mind, because right now, we're getting Ishmael in every chapter. But don't forget, something's going on with Ahab, even if we're not getting a lot of it right now. Um, so, um, um, quickly, two things, and then I want to look at one, one chapter tonight before we leave. Um, we've been looking at Ishmael as a Jonah figure who initially is trying to escape God. He's trying to flee from God. In the setup chapters, it seems to me in these chapters here, we see Ishmael as learner, and I think more particularly in the group that we read tonight as teacher. That if, if Ishmael has been sent back from this catastrophe, if he's Jonah escaping the whale, because one of the things he's teaching us is um, what I suggested a few minutes ago, that, um, that we have to be careful in the way that we read things because so often we misread. And, what he shows us over and over again is that he's standing outside of all these things, able to critique them. Whereas if you looked inside of them, if, if, you, if you read Locke, you would read a man who was really convinced of the rightness of what he was saying. And the whole world has shown that there's lots of things wrong with Locke. If you read Kant and the idealism, the, the way he attempted to build on Descartes, you'd see what's wrong with the idealistic, the idealist tradition, that what's real are the ideas in our heads. He's aware of that and he's watching it play out in the world. Um, so he doesn't go into these philosophies, but the way he presents them shows he's critiquing them. So he sh he's a teacher. He's teaching us to read the world, to see that. And it seems to me, and this is the point I want to go to here. The, the, the beautiful thing about him is that, at least as I've been reading him this time, is this. There's nothing that he presents that he doesn't present reasonably. He's a reporter. He's just telling things. He's passing them on. But so much of what he does is the result of his readings in mythology. He has that one chapter where he um, where he talks the whale or talks about the whale is 
a reincarnation of the, or the um, Hindu deity. Remember he talks about Perse the, the mythic stories when Perseus attacked the monster to save Andromache? What chapter is that? Do you remember, Doc? Do you have it in the notes? Uh, It'll be in a 82, I can't remember. And he says that he's convinced that the, that the monster that Perseus attacked was a whale. And um, there were a couple of other examples of... I think it's the Honor and Glory of Whaling, chapter 82. Chapter 82. Yeah, thanks, Doc. He talks about all these heroes. St. George is described as defeating a dragon, and he's convinced that the dragon was a whale. And, um, in, anyway, he, he, he presents all of these myths and these, the lore and these fabulous stories. Why is he doing it? Um, either we have to say this guy has lost it, or he's suggesting that there are some things to these stories that we've got to look at differently. Now behind them all, and he does this in, in chapter 83, Jonah historically regarded, because this is, this is in some ways the climax of all these stories that have to do with representations of the whale. Now why does he do that here? For the, and he goes into it. For this reason, and it's really funny, he, he describes these people who believe in the Jonah story but because it's a scientific world, they all have to give scientific accounts of it. And if you read it, you re he says, they're stupid. They try to explain all that. They can't be explained. You know, how, how, can, how can the whale have swallowed Jonah and gotten around to the, I think the, wherever it was, at Nineveh, in a day? It's impossible. And finally, the answer on, on um, turn to the very end of the, the chapter. Um, he says that a priest finally resolved the problem by saying it was, um, it was, where does he put it? Uh, oh, in the very last paragraph. For a Portuguese Catholic priest, this very idea of Jonah's going to Nineveh via the Cape of Good Hope was advanced as a single magnification of a general miracle. So, so. Um, read over that chapter and you'll see it's funny because he presents people who raise these doubts about the Jonah story who get these answers that don't answer them. I mean that's, that's part of the problem with the whole book because what we see is over and over and over again people keep offering these explanations for things to justify their way of looking at them and there, there's always something wrong with them. The whole story is about misreading. Now I'm going to raise this question then I want to look at the Grand Armada and, and call it a night. But there's lots of chapters I wish we had time to look at. How do we read the Jonah story? Most people of faith can't let go of it, so they keep coming up with rational explanations that have the effect of making people disbelieve because those rationalizations can't be true. Wait, by the way, St. Thomas said this. Let, let faith be based on reason and you'll destroy faith. Because once you come up against something you can't encounter, what are you going to lose? Your faith is going to go. I hope that's clear. You've got all these people trying to protect the Jonah story, offering these reasons, and all they do is make the story more ridiculous. Does everybody see that? 
So I want to take a minute. How do we read the Jonah story? Here in the middle of these, all these chapters that have been, what I'm calling, have been dealing with teaching us to read, to, to understand that there's so much more than we see, and we've got to learn. We've got to, we've got to learn to see it in this way. And this, hold on, I'm going to come back to the question. Here's, here's the question for me. Melville over and over and over again in this group of chapters we've been reading for this week keeps dealing with the fabulous or the improbable, with the mythic. He keeps using reason to describe these things and always presents them in a humorous way that makes us raise questions about these things, but I think in a way that protects the fabulous and the rational. It's almost as, he's not a Catholic, although in my mind his sensibility is absolutely Catholic. He's, I mean, his whole grasp of the whole world is, you know, in the sense of Catholic meaning it's everything. He uses reason to push us farther into a world of faith where faith can't. Because faith deals with things reason can't see. So he's making all of these shadowy things. He, he talks about the mist coming out of you know, the whales um, as images of the, of the mist that comes out of great intellectual thinkers. As if, and he talks about the moment when he looked in the mirror and he was convinced that he saw a myth coming out of his head when he was conceiving something about heaven. We can laugh at it, but, but there's an interesting thing going. He's, he's making it possible for us to wonder again, to ask, in, in a world that become, that's scientifically become more and more reductive, that, it, that it, it explains things in material terms and, and doesn't, it ignores the rest of it. He's, he's opening this world and using reason to help us enter it in a way that brings reason and faith together. And by faith I mean, that, that may be a, not the right word here, but by faith I mean the mythic, the things that are hard to see, the shadowy, the, the, the absence, the whiteness, you know, things like that. that there, there's a whole world of realities that we get through stories that have to be questioned, but it raises the question, is there something real? And let me put it, let me put it even differently. This is a fictional work. Every work we've read has been fictional. Is there a truth that fiction can give us that's more real than what the sciences can? In Plato's cave, remember, remember he said, the only poet he would allow into his cave was that poet who could show us the eternal, unchanging things. Because everybody else in the cave is locked into things of the world. It's the poet who can present the things of the world, but in such a way to reveal those other things. Is Melville doing that? Watch the way he uses language to, to open us to strange things so that he seems to be trying to reconcile those two things to give us a deeper, larger picture of things. Um, let's see, I forgot my question. I think that was it. I think that was it, yeah. Let's turn to the um, Grand Armada, chapter 87. I was going to be really proud because I was going to look at Karen and say, we're on time. <laughs> She's not here. Um,
this chapter really needs to be set next to the shark massacre because in some ways remember the, the um, if you remember if you remember Ishmael's presentation of the story the sharks began by attacking the whale that was tied to the side of the ship and then they began when the when Tashtigo and Daigu were chasing the sharks away and, and men were trying to spear them to keep them off because if they didn't they'd wake up in the morning to a skeleton and the whale would be eaten. Um, the, the sharks get into this feasting frenzy. They start turning on each other and then they start turning on themselves. And you remember that the prelude to that was um, in the kitchen with Stubb getting all over sharkishly, all over um, fleece, telling him to preach to the to the sharks and tell them to be more gentlemanly. <laughs> it's a parody, it's a parody on the hypocrisy of Stubb. He's so full of himself because he's killed this whale and he thinks he deserves, you know, to be treated like a king. He wants his steak um, better cooked and he faults fleece because fleece doesn't cook it well, he burns it. And then he lies, he covers it up and, and Stubb is convinced he's not going to heaven. <laughs> And he talks about that in terms of going up to the main mast, that he's not going to get up to the main mast. And then he tells him to go preach, and he keeps interrupting him and telling him, you don't preach that way. You, you know, you preach more gentlemanly. And so everything Stubb does is hypocritical. It just, um, but Ishmael presents this in a way that I think encourages us to ask ourselves, because he does this well in the chapters, in what way is that an analogy of what goes on in the economic enterprise world, the business world that the, that the Pequod represents? And I asked that question last week, if we could, if we could find examples of the way in which the, the, that, that feeding frenzy images our world, that they begin by attacking the whale to eat on it, then they turn on themselves, on each other, and then they turn on themselves and begin feasting on their entrails. Everything they void, they eat up again. So it's a, it's an ugly, vicious circle. We talked a little bit about that. I don't want to go back into it tonight, but I want to, I want you to just keep that in mind when we look at the Grand Armada. So in one sense, that's an image of something in the world, and he's asking us to look at humans and see if we can find the way in which that's what we do in our workaday world in some way, that we feast on each other and then end up indirectly feasting on ourselves. And I reminded you last week, if we look at Dante in hell, it's exactly the same picture he gives us. Remember, people eating on each other, feasting. The ultimate picture at the center of hell is um, Ugolino feasting on Ruggiero, the bishop, and Satan feasting on Brutus, Judas, and Cassius. And I suggested then that's appropriate because it, if hell is the opposite of heaven, that's got to be the counterpart of its opposite in hell, which is Christ offering himself his food in the Eucharist. It's a divine life offered to us. So this image of feasting is not a small one. And I also suggested that it's an image of the masculine, particularly the sharkish world. Um, it, it's not identified that way, but in, in some ways it, it seems to me more directly an image of that. Um, here in the Grand Armada, we get an image of something maternal in nature, very feminine. The, um, this is the chapter that, takes, that, um, that covers that part of the voyage where they just leave the Indian Ocean and pass in or enter into the Java Seas and they're headed 
towards the China Sea's north, and then they're going to go from there into the Pacific, and that's where they'll meet Moby Dick. Um, they're chased by Malaysian pirates. They, said they get rid of them finally, and when they do, they lower the boats to catch a whale. Queequeg in Star in uh, Starbuck's boat um, catches a whale with his harpoon, but the whale drags them into the center of this huge armada, this great herd of whales. It's one of the most touching scenes. Um, there is this commotion um, at the heart of this um, herd, particularly on its boundaries, but. Um, they have to be careful because the whale is taking them into the center of this and at the center of this herd they find these mother whales who are nursing their calves and it's, a, it's one of the most tender um, scenes in all of the hold on let me if I can find it I'm not finding it well it's rather interesting that the, you know, that the, the, that the, the rope Slacks and and the and the reason of it are interesting for me because I had a shot in that particular uh, part of the sea and of course the water there is is only like a couple hundred feet deep it's not uh, you know at, at at most I mean in fact it's most of it's it's less than uh, you know just just a little over a hundred feet which is rather surprising so he couldn't you know the whale couldn't sound very couldn't go down to sound very very far because it was not not much, not much room there. I mean, in that mm -hmm. shallow, shallow sea. Mm -hmm. Did look at the paragraph that begins. It had been next to impossible to dart these drag, drugged harpoons. You know that they, that as a way of helping to catch the whale, they they throw these harpoons that are attached to what they call drugs, and the drugs are like these big floats that they've created that act as a drag, so that as the whale pulls them, the whale wears out. And it helps them catch him because he he tires himself more easily for the kill. Four, say it again, Doctor. Bottom of four fifty one. It had been next to impossible to dart these drugged harpoons were it not that as we advanced into the herd, our whale's weight greatly diminished. Moreover, that as we went still further and further from the circumference of commotion, the direful disorder seemed waning. So that when at last the jerking harpoon drew out and the towing blade sideways vanished, then with the tapering force of his parting momentum, we glided between two whales into the innermost heart of the shoal, as if from some mountain torrent we had slid into a serene valley lake. Here the storms and the roaring glens between the outermost whales were heard but not felt. In this center, in the central expanse, the sea presented that smooth, satin-like surface called a sleek, produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods. Yes, we were now in that enchanted calm which they say lurks at the heart of every commotion. This is what he's going to say, too, and this is extraordinary. Think about Ishmael's changing, at how much he's learning and what it does for him, because what he's going to describe is, even though this commotion goes all around him, He's absolutely calm. It's as if something in the soul finds an answering order and calmness in the universe in the midst of all this violence and struggle. So hold up those two things. We have an image of the shark attack where the sharks are vicious and attacking everything. And here at the center is something feminine and nurturing. 
go down still. Um, still in the distance, distance, we beheld the tumults of the outer centric circles and saw successive pods of whales, eight or ten in each, swiftly going round. Um, let's see. Hold on. Go down a little bit into the next paragraph. Um, At any rate, spoutings might be discovered from our low boat that seemed playing up almost from the rim of the horizon. I mention this circumstance because as if the cows and calves had been purposely locked up in this innermost fold, as if they're being protected, there's something nurturing instinctively in these creatures. And as if the wide extent of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping, or possibly being so yet... Now, obviously he's reading. I mean, he... He doesn't know, but he's suggesting this is what they're doing because it's so con it's so constant. These these calves are protected by the what the whales are doing with them. As if the wide extent of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping, or possibly being so young, unsophisticated, and every way innocent and inexperienced, however it may have been, these smaller whales now and then visiting our becalmed boat from the margin of the lake evinced a wondrous fearlessness and confidence because these are men, you know, who, they don't feel the danger, it's like they're trusting. I remember once in one of my UD classes when a professor, we were, I can't remember the work, we were talking about men and women and one of the, I remember one of the, the distinguishing marks of women is they tend to get children out of harm's way and remember Abraham taking <laughs> Isaac to the sacrifice. And, I mean, the fundamental differences in some way between a man and a woman. Here you've got all this, this nurturing act at the center of nature, very feminine, protective of these kids, the, the, the calves, and how trusting the calves are. Men are out to kill them. And here the calves are frisking around them as if there's no danger. Um, and every way innocent and inexperienced, however it may have been, these smaller whales now and then visiting our become boat from the margin of the lake evinced a wondrous fearlessness and confidence, or else a still become panic which it was impossible not to marvel at. Like household dogs, they came snuffing round us right up to our gunwales and touching them till it almost seemed that some spell had suddenly domesticated. Quick, quick, patted their foreheads, Starbuck scratched their backs with his lance but fearful of the consequences for the time refraining from doing this. Um, I'm not finding it, but he describes the mothers looking up from beneath the... the read it, Doc, because I've got a different... Read it, can you? Do you have it? The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent and as human infants while suckling will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast as if leading two different lives at the time, and while still drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Even so do the young of these whales seem looking up toward us, but not at us as if we were but a bit of bulk weed in their newborn sight. Floating on their sides, the mothers also seemed quietly eyeing us. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Go back to where I left off before, too. Um, just, just a little bit after where I left off. One of these little infants that from certain queer tokens seem hardly a day old, 
might have measured some 14 feet in length, some 6 feet in girth. He was a little frisky, though as yet his body seemed scarce, yet recovered from that irksome position it had so lately occupied in the maternal um, reticule. We are tail to head, and already for the final spring the unborn whale lies bent like a tartar's bow. The delicate side fins and the palms of his flutes still freshly retain the plated, pleated, crumpled appearance of a baby's ears newly arrived at from foreign parts. This is a whaling ship, but there's not an aspect of our life that Melville doesn't get into. And he sets them away. I mean, remember the shark, the shark massacre, and now the Grand Amarda, where he takes us into this inner calm and its maternal aspect. So he shows us two aspects of nature, one that is sharkish and violent, and one that is maternal and protective. Um, um, one last thing before we stop, because I want to stop here. Um, it, to me, it's amazing what Melville is doing. Um, he has the gifts of a poet, the, a poet's care with language. He's able to articulate aspects of our world that ordinarily reason can't get to. They're the intuitions of a poet. He's helping us to see shadowy things. He's helping us to see analogies, connections between things, in such a way that he opens a larger world, a much larger world. There's not an aspect of this world that he does not touch on. And he does it in a way to bring reason, and I'm going to say something mythic, but I hope you know that what by mythic I mean the things that faith opens on, those things that ordinarily we can't see. So he does it in a way that helps us to trust in him. Remember, one of the questions that I'm asking tonight is how do we read the Jonah story? If we read it literally, we throw it away and say the Bible's wrong because nobody can believe that. I hope that's clear. Yeah? I mean, it's ridiculous. From a scientific point of view, it's ridiculous. So one of the questions he's raising is, either, either we throw that away and deny that there's anything like that because the sciences can't show it, or there's something beyond the sciences that's important for us to learn. And if it is, what is it? In chapter after chapter, he's showing us analogies to being, the logos, active, at work. Something's going on that enlarges our mind, enlarges our hearts, helps us to see things. Um, what's he teaching us? What's he learning? Okay. Um, in next week, when we get together, one of the things that I want to set out is that um, we've already um, experienced a couple of GAMs, the Town Ho, the, um, the, the, the Jungfrau, the Virgin. We, we are going to encounter some more. When, when you encounter these Gams, I'd like you to do something. I'm going to give you a sheet with a diagram the way I did with the Iliad next week, but put a circle with all of the Gams and put in the, myth, in the middle um, the mystery of my dick. What does each one of those Gams tell us about this mystery? And what does it tell us about the way people read? Because every one of those ships reads something partially. There's something they don't see. They have a certain way of living in the world, and they see things in that way, and they're not open to other things. What, so what is Melville showing us about mystery and the various ways we come at it? Um, what reason can do to help us to get there? And 
other powers beyond reason that are necessary to get there. Poetry, the imagination, things like that. Okay, let's stop. If you see Karen, tell her, tell her we made it. You guys have a good night. Have yeah. a good week and see. You. Oh, oh, bye. Well, no, you got the. You all got the study guides, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Always nice to see you guys. Huh? Always nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Come back. Come back. <laughs> now that she knows what she's getting, how yeah. can she not?